Welcome to another episode of In the Zone. I'm your host, Garrison Roy, and today we have an awesome guest, Will Carroll. Uh, Will, go ahead and introduce yourself to the to the audience. Yeah, um, thanks for having me, Garrison. I'm really excited to be here, even if uh, there were some, it's not a technical issue, it was me issues, I'm late. Uh, so here we are in the middle of the NFL Combine when we're recording this. Uh, what awesome. I've done for the last 20 years is cover sports injuries, sports medicine, sports science. Uh, I've written a column called Under the Knife uh, for all those 20 years. And what I try to do is be a translator between the doctors and the practitioners, the athletic trainers, the physical therapists, and the players themselves. Because they're the ones that are dealing with these and don't have time to come out and explain for the hundredth time, what is a sprained ankle? Why is it four weeks? Is it six weeks? Why is it different? Why is the guy not back? So I, I've had the honor of telling that story for the last couple decades uh, and learned so much along the way and been able to share that journey with people. Uh, I'm currently writing uh, at Substack, under the knife.substack.com. I've got two books that I'm working on. The one uh, that's getting ready to come out on March 15th is The Science of Baseball. And I'm in the process of putting the science of football to bed. They're, they're obviously related. There's some obvious differences, but I'm excited about it. I'm writing the book kind of for you know, 10-year-old me. I wish I could remember the exact book, but I remember, you know, I was a Little League baseball player. I loved baseball. And there was some book that I, I read. It was probably, it wasn't science of hitting or I would have been a better hitter. There was some book that just gave me some new insight. And I remember going to the school library and I don't want to read on this or that. I wanted baseball. That's all I wanted. Forget math, forget all the other things. And so my hope is that some little kid will come along and be similar and maybe he'll learn a little something. Maybe he'll be like me, that he wasn't good enough to keep playing at a higher level, but he could stay in the game and, you know, maybe – Maybe it's the next Hyam Bloom. Maybe it's the next uh, James Click or, or one of those guys, uh, GM. Maybe it's the next athletic trainer or strength coach. And so hopefully science and baseball will give them a little bit of insight. For sure. Well, and that's the whole point, I think, especially from my perspective, sharing all the information that I learned and things like that is like, hey, I want whoever comes after me to, you know, take this even further, right? Like standing on the shoulder of giants, so to speak. Exactly. Like, People I've learned from, I've tried to take what they've learned and then, you know, take it to another degree or another another level. So totally with you on that. Um, but it's really interesting that you've, you know, been writing about all this within the past 20 years, because honestly, within that time frame, really all sports, but especially baseball has definitely taken off and yeah. shifted more towards that science side. Um, so what in your perspective, yeah. I guess go a little bit over like how that's evolved over the past 20 years. And then what do you think, you know, the next 10 to 20 years look like? Um, wow. That, that, that's, that's not just another book. That's another two books. Um, yeah, I've sure. been lucky enough to have a front row seat for it. Uh, yeah. I was at baseball prospectus in the early days. I started there in 2003. I uh, was there about uh, eight years working with some great people. I just mentioned Haim and James. Uh, if you don't know them, Haim is the general manager uh, essentially, I forget what his actual title is. Titles have gotten so corporate. Uh, he runs the Boston Red Sox, at least on okay. the baseball side. Yeah. And, and James Click runs the Houston Astros. And those are two guys who work for us, uh, work with us at, at Baseball Prospectus. And there's, there's tons of those. Uh, you know, people that we talked to early on, like Chris Antonetti, uh, who's the president of the Indians, the new GM there, Mike Chernoff. When I met him, he was an intern that was basically assigned to take me and Nate Silver. Out, out to uh, dinner after the event. That's um, cool. Yeah. You know, when, when I first started Baseball Perspectives, Moneyball had just come out. And that that was the explosion point. Yeah. All this stuff had been building and building, and it was in the game. It wasn't, you know, it's a great story. Is it the full truth? 
well, I'm not saying Michael Lewis is a liar, but he made it into a much better story. Than, you got to make it more Hollywood-esque, yeah. I guess. Sure. Yeah, the, the, he found the story inside of it uh, that so many of us didn't. You know, writing a column about injuries is not going to be a movie. Uh, so, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> uh, you could have one like, uh, I guess, injury or like table turning injury, and how someone actually used that to to flip and change their career. Um, I've got a pilot idea, but we'll leave it. I'm sure. Uh, But (laughs) yeah, I've really been able to see the changeover from, you know, I hate to call it the old school, but seeing how the new school, the analytics, the sports science, how sports medicine has really jumped forward, how players have gotten significantly better. I just wrote an article uh, on my column today about, uh, it was actually a two-part column where first, I took a look at uh, Roger Bannister. If you don't remember him, he was the first guy to run a four-minute mile. And, you know, it had taken years. I think it was nine years between the old record, which was four minutes and 10 seconds. And he jumped, you know, uh, to, to, you know, just under that. Yeah, and now the record is 343. And that's actually yeah. stood since 1999. But 343 mile. I can barely do that in my car. Uh, so it's one of those things where now we're seeing all these pitchers that are throwing a hundred miles an hour. I had a, a cross checker, one of the guys who checks the scouts tell me that on his list right now uh, here at the start of March, he had 75 high school kids with a documented 100 mile an hour pitch. And by documented, that is a scouts calibrated gun or a track man. Uh, in one case, it was a Hawkeye that was the, the there was a You're showcase. In, park, I guess. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They were yeah. at a major league park and, but 75 high school kids. He wasn't even talking about college kids where we saw wow. you know, Tennessee's uh, late inning reliever, Tim Joyce through 103, like it was nothing. I know. Uh, so not <laughs> we're seeing that more and more. But the problem is, aside from a role Chapman, not a single one of those guys survives. Mm. You know, you either take, they drop know. off quickly or they end up with a big scar in their arm. Oh, yeah. So, well, I think circling back even earlier, early 2000s, right? Like the first couple of guys that were throwing 100 was like the Joel Zumayas or like those guys. Mm-hmm. They could only last like one year. They were yeah. like, like in and out of, you know, rehab stints, unfortunately. Exactly. But, exactly. Um, we saw we saw a ton of those, whether it was college kids that have come up. Jordan Hicks is trying to come back. He's new try to be a starter for the Cardinals uh, if we ever get a season. So it's, it's just one of those things. But if we go to sports science, there's a new variation on Tommy John surgery that uses a small piece of Kevlar. And this has been going on. uh, You know, they've used this technique in other parts since at least 2012. They've used it in elbow since 2016. So this isn't a new procedure per se. We just don't have a lot of them. Sure. Uh, it hasn't really the test of time yet, right? Yeah, and the, the three at the major league level that are acknowledged, I know there are more. Uh, I think there's about seven. Um, they're all soft tossers. You know, Rich Hill is probably the best known of them. Um, and, and so we don't know a lot about it. But are we going to get to a stage where Tommy John revision, which is the second Tommy John, when you have to have it again because you broke the one, the the one that was fixed? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is common. You know, we're seeing more and more revisions because kids are having Tommy John surgery earlier and earlier. And it seems to last about five years. There's all sorts of weird science about ligamentization uh, there. So that's what I wrote about today is, is there a chance we're going to see a leap forward? If we can fix elbows and not have them break, if we can use a piece of Kevlar, uh, it's not actually Kevlar, it's called suture tape. Um, it's like Kevlar, I've learned. Um, if we can use this piece of suture tape, which is five times stronger than the ligament, could we end revision? And if we can end revision, if we can make this survivable, then is somebody going to throw 110, 115? Uh, it's theoretically possible. I, I, I wasn't able to do the math because there's, you know, it's not a one-to-one relationship between velocity and stress, but yeah. I, I know we can get over 110. Yeah, here's a question. Can the human body do that? And there's a whole debate. I remember. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. I remember Glenn Fleissig, uh, who's 
preeminent biomechanist saying he didn't think we'd ever see 110. Uh, I think we will. I, I just don't, when he said that was a while back, I don't think he anticipated uh, some of the changes that we've seen. Right. Well, I mean, even then, like some people would say, oh yeah, we probably won't ever see over 102. 100, now we're seeing like that on a regular basis. 105 yeah. is being touched every once in a while. Um, now from my perspective, being more of like on the performance enhancement side, uh, obviously just kind of being boots on the ground, a lot of these guys are going to some other orthopedics and stuff and they're just like slapping band-aids on whether it's like PRP or just <clears throat> not full reconstruction, but just the repair, uh, yeah. or the internal brace type surgery. So, um, you know, like I said, we don't really have enough time to really say like, Hey, which one is the the more effective or like which one actually led yeah. to, to the revision was it because they kept putting these little band-aids on before and then it led to a revision or did they just go to full reconstruction and then go from there right so a lot of questions yeah. will be asked exactly there's so much study that has to be done but studies take a long time mm-hmm. uh yeah i did an article a couple months ago about a new technique in knee surgery again using the internal brace but a couple others and they're getting guys back from ACLs at the six-month point rather than the nine to twelve-month point, and there's a chance that can be pushed down a little bit more. Uh, people are are running and cutting at, at a really early uh, rate because of these changes. But it's a brand new procedure. If you have a brand new procedure, you don't have three, five, ten-year studies. Mm-hmm. You have you know the, the three-year studies about to come out on that, uh, and and I think it's absolutely groundbreaking. We'll have to see how it goes as it kind of uh, goes out. But the same thing with elbows, you know, the doctors and people like you with boots on the ground, you do have to deal with it. You, you, the conservative therapy, you never want to have surgery. One right. of the things I always have to say is, is that you never want to have surgery. That's the last resort. Uh, I always get these parents like, should my kid have Tommy John surgery? I was like, is he hurt? Like, well, he's going to get hurt. I'm like, no, it's not inevitable. Yeah. It's not. It's not a preventative thing that a lot of people think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody always has the myths of prophylactic Tommy John. And as far as I know, and I know most of the surgeons that do it on a regular basis, none of them would do that. Yeah. Is there some crazy doctor in the outback that's doing it? I don't know. Uh, But it's not going to help. All you're doing is reconstructing the ligament. And, Mm -hmm look, the rate of revision is going up and up and up. So why give your kid a scar for no apparent reason? You would never say, eh, I need a new ACL. Let's just go and do that. Oh, absolutely. Well, and and one person that I know on Twitter that's really adamant about shoulder surgeries, right? Randy Sullivan, he always talks about like, hey, exactly. all these other guys that I've talked to, like shoulder is probably the worst one you want to have surgery yeah. on, um, which oh, is... Absolutely. I mean, the shoulder does so many things. You think about an elbow, an elbow hinge, uh, it does one thing. Um, and it's a relatively controllable motion. There's some rotational force on it as well, obviously. Um, but you know, I, I'm not a handy guy, but I can fix a hinge shoulder. Uh, I remember Neil Elitrash, who's the, the team doctor for the Dodgers and the LA Rams. So now he's got rings from both sports. Plus he has one from the Lakers. So okay. I'm trying to find out if he has, if, if the Kings, uh, the Kings have never won one while he's been there. So, um, <laughs> but I remember him at a conference saying that putting a shoulder together was like putting together a puzzle without the box top, because you don't know what that thing looked like before all the damage. You have an idea, but everybody's body adapts differently. Is this tendon supposed to be over here? Is it supposed to be this much tension? You look to the other shoulder but in a throwing athlete, we know the body's largely asymmetrical, which is problematic, but not for that particular motion. So it, did this one adapt? Is this going to be the same? Again, there's some amazing techniques over there. Uh, we're seeing shoulders get better and better. I wrote an article in 2004 uh, that showed labrums. You know, Labrum surgery, there was one out of, I want to say, 30-something people. And, and the one was Rocky Biddle. Uh, and, and, you know, Rocky Biddle is not exactly awe-inspiring, even at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kurt Schilling, it was actually how I met Kurt, uh, popped up. He goes, I had the same thing. And I came back and I was like, okay, two out of 40-something. 
Uh, yeah. We're better at that. It's about 50-50 now, which is a huge improvement. Will we ever get up there? I don't think we'll ever get nearly the success rates with shoulders just because they're so much more complex. Oh, it's super, super complex. I mean, yeah, there's so many other portions to it. It's very similar to a hip, but also like you have the scap and the in the clavicle, whereas the hips mm-hmm. just like ball and socket straight up there. Um, so there's a there's a whole lot more factors involved for sure. Yeah, and and you know for somebody like Randy who's really pushed forward the the movement science, the the real kinesiology rather than you know the fancy words for PE that we all had in college. Um, he's really done a lot of work on how that movement, how those adaptations are. But we, we've also seen you know huge jumps uh, in, in changes there and how we're, we're functioning with those. You know, uh, I can remember back in, in, gosh, this is really early on about scapular movement. And mm-hmm. I saw a recent study about, you know, is there really uh, kind of a wing scap problem? Is, is resting scap something you can really read? Uh, I want to say it was Mike Reinold that, that put that okay. out. Yeah, I think I might have seen the same thing where, yeah, like the resting position isn't always like, everybody wants like the resting yeah. to look perfect, but it's really more about what happens as soon as they start to move. Like, does it go from winging to then lock in and then go? Um, exactly. I, yeah. you know, I, I read this in passing the other day because uh, I'm not boots on the ground. I'm not working with people like that, but I can remember back in, gosh, I want to say 2006, 2007, there's Dr. Named ben Kibbe, who was really the first to talk about six scapula and, and the way it was moving and got us, thinking about those things. Uh, so to see that progression is, is, is always kind of neat. It, things come in and out of fashion. Uh, people go, oh, but so you were wrong. No, we just learned something new. You know, there are a lot of things I believe now that I did not believe 10 years ago. Now I'm a huge advocate of long toss for pitchers. But I was actually against it because I misunderstood the process in a lot of ways that people misunderstand the process. And Alan Jager did a lot of persuasion. And I went back and talked to Frank Joe before he passed. Uh, and a lot of the throwing protocols were based on that. And he, he wasn't like, I didn't think we should stop at 120 feet. It was just the parking lot outside uh, Dodger Stadium at the time. We had 120 feet. It's not like 120 feet was a magic number. That's just mm-hmm. the space we had. <laughs> and if That's I could interesting. Get him- I've, I've honestly never heard that because everybody kind of always talks about like the, you know, old school thrower programs are like return to throwing and how it's distance based and they want it to yeah. be, you know, everybody's shifting to be more like RPE. It was then- literally back to back mounds. Uh, so they would, that, that were there. So uh, 120 feet ish uh, between that there was uh, between the clinic and I forget what the building was. I think it was a maintenance garage or something. Was, uh, that's where they did their long, long toss. It was 120 yeah. feet. Skip ahead the next 60 seconds if you don't want to find out about a company I co-founded, Ink Sports Performance. So here's the scoop. At Ink Sports Performance, we get it. We were athletes ourselves, former college and professional pitchers. We were also former college coaches as well. Rob and I, we don't do one-size-fits-all programs. We custom craft each training and throwing program and offer that one-on-one coaching support that you need where you're not just a number. We're all about that personal touch. We'll dive into your training videos, whip up some of the program designed to take you to your next level. Nothing cookie cutter here. So if you, one of your friends, or maybe a player that you know is serious about competing at the next level, hit us up on our website, give us a call, get that set up at inksportsperformance.com. And also just a heads up, we're also very selective who we take. Right, we only take a handful of dedicated athletes, and if you're not putting in the work, we'll have to say goodbye. So let's ink you in to the next level. Wow, that's really cool. Um, it's crazy to think like how environmental factors can influence a lot of things, right? Um, so what what I've actually been kind of diving into recently is like more of like an economical uh, dynamics approach to things, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of us and myself included, right? I fall into this trap where we're very system, motor systems focused or focused on the individual 
but we don't really zoom out and look at the big picture, right? We don't look at, hey, is he throwing on dirt or turf or, you know, multiple other things. Even whenever you get in games, it's like, is he throwing to a righty or lefty? Is the backstop a lot further away or is it a lot closer, right? And those things are going to influence how the guy actually moves and how he, you know, goes and performs the task. Um, so I actually want to kind of circle back and not to get too far off topic here, but you mentioned yeah. uh, the, the Rams and the doc there. So obviously um, one of the more recent injuries in the Super Bowl, OBJ, right, had a mm-hmm. – uh, um, he, he just recovered from an injury and then during the Super Bowl injured it right before halftime. Um, and a lot of people were like, oh, he didn't strengthen it or he didn't do all this. And I'm like, I find that really hard to believe because yeah. I think the Rams – are pretty thorough with all their stuff. They have pretty much all the money in the world now. It's like almost like the, almost like not saying that the Cowboys are bad, but like their perspective, like how they're throwing money around is kind of shifted. Um, But it's, I think it might've been, and this is all circling back to like the environmental environmental perspective, right. Is um, was he during that rehab process, was he, putting himself in those like more alive situations or more game-like situations so that it could, you know, withstand that stress is like, I don't know the answer to that. That's just kind of a question that I've had. It's yeah. like, you know, I don't really well, know. Let's, let's take a couple points here. First, when, how can you put yourself in those situations? Hmm. The, yeah. the stress of the situation, um, you know, I can't imagine what it's like playing in an NFL game, let alone, the Super Bowl. Let alone the Super Bowl, yeah. Yeah. It's really in a new stadium. That, sure. Yeah, a new stadium. Uh, it's a turf stadium. It's, mm. you know, I haven't seen a ton of data because we've only got two years of data uh, on that stadium. And they changed the turf. Um, Did so they change I don't the know turf just can... for the Super Bowl or was it? I mean, No, they, they actually changed it year over year. And I'm not sure okay. why. Uh, it's the same kind of turf. They just redid it. it could have been COVID. Are they going to change it every year? Honestly, don't know and haven't been able to find out. New sponsors, they got to lay that on the turf or something like that. You know, oh, they just paint that stuff. Um, yeah. Which was actually one of the issues. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday here at the NFL Combine. Um, Jamison Williams, a player from Alabama, uh, blew out his ACL uh, very near uh, midfield, hmm. and there are seams there where they had laid in um, the the logo. They took out the Colts logo and they put in the, the national championship logo, but they had painted over the seams. So where he stepped was very close to that. Can I tell you if he was on a seam or on paint? No. Did that have a contribution to it? Yeah. Know. Who knows? I mean, but it's, it's yeah. factors to consider though, right? Especially- yeah. Going back to Beckham, he, this is his third ACL. It's a second on that one. So is there yeah. uh, what Jim Andrews calls a tissue issue? You know, is he just genetically disinclined to have strong enough ligaments to take those kind of movements? It was the, you know, for me here in Indianapolis, it was probably a decade ago that Reggie Wayne had a very, very similar one. He was going the other way, so it was his right knee versus his left. But he just twisted. You saw the tibia shift. There was no question about what had happened. It was just uh, twisting and stopping, and the ACL didn't hold up. So, Mm -hmm. You know, he had a good surgeon. Uh, he had good surgery, had a good rehab. He was on a, a, a reconstructed ligament that gave again. So they, I understand they did a quad tendon for this one, which is not uncommon, new-ish, but not uncommon. Uh, there, there are so many factors. Can, can we recreate? No, but we know, you know that particular mechanism of injury is what largely leads to ACL is mm-hmm. that twist and tibial shift. Uh, so I, I don't know. We don't know the answer. We know what breaks them. We can't at this point tell you how to fix them. Right. Uh, but well, that's, yeah, maybe, that's the whole, you, yeah. That's the, yeah, you can't tell, you can't go, you know, Odell, maybe you don't cut. That's not going to work. <laughs> you can't gonna have that. to at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he was pushed back early. You know, he had a good run there. Mm-hmm. They had other injuries. Uh, Robert Woods had the ACL during training camp, uh, which is why Beckham ended up coming in and why Cooper Cup was catching the ball every six seconds, it seemed like. Oh, uh, he was so, dominant. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. I, 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 I actually uh, sent $50 from my, my fantasy winnings to, I forget which charity, oh, really? Cooper, 
the board. So somebody put up a list on Twitter of like uh, fantasy all-stars and the charities they support. And they're like, consider it. And I was like, that's a great idea. I think everybody should do that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Cooper Cup carried me this year. <laughs> it was, it yeah, was, I had to. So it was like a waiver wire special. Oh, yeah. So under under the knife, right? Um, you know, on the, on the title of like whenever I was looking at it, you you have a perspective for guys who do betting and stuff too, right? Um, which is kind of interesting because we'll shift back to baseball here. A um, little bit of inside information there. The uh, Atlantic League is ac- actually shifting away from TrackMan and going to more Yacker Tech, mm-hmm. filling all of their uh, stadiums there mainly for the reason to, for them to do more sports betting because it has more optics, more visuals with that. Mm-hmm. So do you think that outside influence from the sport can kind of also change, you know, the direction of where, you know, football, baseball might go in the future? Yeah, I do. And I think that's going to be a major uh, storyline and driver uh, of action over the next, um, I'll say five to 10 years. Yeah. I think a lot of it depends on whether or not we get a national gambling law uh, rather than. You know, well, if it's national, then it's game over. over. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I figure if California or Texas get it, then uh, they'll have to kick in. But, you know, having, having followed this, I worked at FanDuel uh, early on in the process before it was, we, we couldn't even say gambling when I was there. We had to right. avoid it like the third rail. Now, not so much. Uh, yeah. I do think the more data we have, uh, the better data we have, the better data quality. What we have to come up with is more transparency, and teams don't want that. They mm-hmm. don't want to tell you what they know. Um, sure. They barely want to tell each other what they know. Uh, <laughs> the siloing of information is one of the real issues. Oh, man, yeah. So I think what we're going to see is that that the money around gambling is going to force some things. I hope we don't have a crisis first. Because we are seeing some asymmetrical data and injuries especially are one of those areas where the NFL tries to control it. Major League Baseball does it a little bit differently because of the daily schedule. You know, they, they had to have, uh, I forget who their betting partner was, uh, I think it was BetMGM, where they got the lineups first and then they dispersed it, which I didn't think was a great way. I was just like, put it out there. But the problem is, you know, it would not be outside of the realm for a, a high volume gambler to pay a clubby to give him that lineup five minutes early uh, or, you know, pay the clubby to tell him, you know, it, why is this guy out? Uh, and we mm-hmm. see that those things are done all the time. Oh, yeah. Time it's one of those things behind the scenes. Nobody really knows. Yeah. Anonymous sources tell us things we're not supposed to know. Mm-hmm. And why do they do it? There's a, there's a ton of reasons, but uh, if some nefarious gambler comes in there, it's not going to be, uh, you know, um, gosh, what was the guy's name from the White Sox? I'm blanking on the uh, Arnold Rothstein. There's, it's not oh. going to be that. He's not going to pay off the players, though. Maybe at a lower level, if you think about the the minimum salary they're arguing over, that might really affect the gambling. You know, if somebody can make fifty thousand dollars. If we get betting on minor league games, that's where I really worry um, because those guys make no money at all. Somebody comes in there with, I'll give you $1,000 to throw a game. They're going to be tempted. Sure. Uh, so those, I think it'll be a much smaller thing because, uh, you know, instead of having one thing to bet on, there's a million at this stage. So oh, yeah. if, if you just have small advantages, you can give yourself a better shot of winning. And, and that could tilt the playing field. And, somebody's going to screw up and do something nefarious enough that we're going to have to really confront the issue of transparency and management. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, whew, you, you said it where, you know, everybody has like these little silos of information and, you know, it, it baseball itself too. They even don't even tell the player, like they'll have the physician go in and they won't even tell the player exactly what's going on, which is actually pretty nuts sometimes. Um, yeah, which is why there, there's a lack of trust. So many mm-hmm. players go to outside doctors. And I think it's great. I mean, I mean, there are good doctors in the teams, but there, there, there is something of a disconnect there. The doctor, in most cases, works for the team. In some cases, mm-hmm. the team is being paid by the doctor, which 
adds a whole different dynamic. Yeah, that's, that's a whole other thing there. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, is this doctor acting for the team or acting for me? And 99.9% of the cases, that doctor is top-notch, sure. uh, yeah. completely uh, working for the patient in his best interest. But it's just that, that small little area in the back. Uh, yeah. I, I think doctors do a good job. They, they tell the patient, remember, they're the patient. Okay. They stop being a player at the time they're injured, and they start being a patient. Uh, and the same sort of protections and choices that all of us have to make with our own doctors, uh, that happens. And I've seen that over and over and over. I'll have players call me and say, who should I go see? And I was like, who did you see? You yeah. know, what did the doctor tell you? Which of the team doctors? And, and people forget there's not just one team doctor. There's team doctor. There's team orthopedist. There's usually, there's actually two primary care in most cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember working uh, with a team, this is probably 15 years ago, but I went and, and this team had a medical symposium, which not a lot of teams do. They got all their medical staff from all the different levels together. They had all the team doctors and they gave out a list of their team doctors. And these were all the doctors that just were basically on retainer. If somebody needed a dentist, we would try to go to this. Is, this is whose number we give them. You can go to any dentist you want, but you know, here's the team psychiatrist. Here's the team uh, optometrist. Here's the team everything. And I remember going down the list, and I was like, "Wow, this is a lot of doctors. It looks like a phone book." And then I I saw obstetrics, and I was like, um, "Why? Why do your players need a gynecologist?" <laughs> the assistant trainer at the time just looks at me and goes. Because they got girlfriends. I was like, oh, I mean, yeah. okay. <laughs> We're going to put them all on the same health insurance, I guess. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So I guess shifting from that, um, you know, going into a little bit more of like trying to objectively measure everything, right? So we'll shift to, to your book and like the science of baseball, right? Really within the past 20 years, a lot of, uh, you know, just measuring anything from the velocity to certain percentages stats have like gone through where it was like your typical just box score. And now it's like, you know, pages on pages of even just one game. So where do you see the balance of like the little nuanced stuff that maybe like the subjective stuff that you can't really measure and then the, the measurables and like how those can kind of come together? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I don't think anything can't be measured. Uh, uh, I, I just don't think we've figured out how to standardize it. You know, what we see as unmeasurable, you know, heart and grit and hustle and all these other things, you can usually find in other ways. You can you still know, observe you, it. You, yeah, like you can yeah. see it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not just that. You can usually measure it. If you want to talk about hustle, uh, I asked people, I was like, how would you measure hustle? What are you looking for when you've got a guy who's hustling? And he's like, I want that guy who's running down to first base on every play. We can measure that. That's speed. (laughs) If you have the right cameras, you can do that. Otherwise, like you said, you can just watch. And and so you're measuring with your eyes. That data is in your head. It's not purely, you know, objectively measured, but we're doing that. So. I don't think there's anything outside measurement. What we don't have is context. How should we weight that? Yes. You know, is, yeah. Does hustle really matter or does hustle create a bunch of hamstring strains? Uh, <laughs> you could be a hustler, like a tryhard in, in the wrong part of the game or the wrong situations. You got to exactly. gotta learn how to channel that. And, you know, growing up, I was like, hey, why do you like the big league guys? Like they don't hustle like straight off off the field or like going to and from or like, why do they not? sprint all the way to first base after each one. I was like, after going up, I was like, oh, they have 162 games. They're trying to use that energy very wisely because they're, you know, they're going on multiple travel trips and stuff like that. So they're, they're, their bodies are, are taxed. So they're having to, you know, in, in a way be as efficient as possible with that, with that hustle. Exactly. Exactly. I, I remember watching tennis. My dad is a huge tennis guy. So I, I kind of got sucked into watching tennis half the time just so I have something to talk to him about. Um, but there are a lot of times you'll see a shot and that tennis player will just stop. He's like, I'm not getting that one. And they do have an innate knowledge of, you know, maybe I could dive for it, 
and, and flick it, but it's not worth the energy expenditure. Mm. And that's, this is the one area where I think we don't have measurements is, or at least the right measurements, or at least the right context. Right. I think we don't know the stresses on the body. We don't know the inputs and the outputs. If you think about a player that you're working with, uh, you can, I mean, if you're in the weight room, if you're, you're on the floor, if you're out on the field, you can get those physical things. But all the inputs, there's a lot of them. I mean, just things like nutrition and hydration, uh, you know, mental stress. But on the other side, it's recovery. There's, you know, if we think of, you know, players like a phone, you know, mm. I, I know, you know, when my phone, you start panicking when it gets uh, yeah, below half. So uh, that goes immediately on the charger. Uh, okay. And I can watch how fast it's going to recharge. I can't do that with a player. You know, if every kid had like a battery gauge on their head, that would be really nice. Yeah. Or and they're trying they're, to get as best they can with like whoop straps or aura rings and stuff like that. But, you know, some of that's still very, uh, very subjective. Very like, early. Yeah. Lacks a lot of. Yeah. You, like you said, context. Uh, yeah. Context is. Yeah. You need context. You know, I, I have an Apple Watch. Love it. I uh, think it's great. I have like. How long has this thing been out? It's been almost a decade. So I've got like a decade of sleep data uh, of how long I slept, how theoretically how well I slept. Um, and, and here's the thing. I don't know what to do with it. I, yeah. I'm a fairly educated guy. I've got access to pretty much any doctor I want to call, but I have utterly no idea what to do with it. Yeah. Well, it's when, the when same it, thing when, for like what you said, whenever guys get injured or things like that, like you need – one, the interpretation, but then also, hey, is there a practical application? Not saying everything needs to have some type of practical application to help, you know, improve it or not. But, you know, that, that's the things that where we are and I guess in the game of baseball right now is like, oh, hey, yeah, we have all this data. All right. Now, what, what, what the hell do we do with this? Right. Yeah. And that's where, you know, the coach player relationship comes in is like, OK, hey, th this guy responds well to this. Or, hey, don't tell him the numbers because he just wants to, you know, grip it and rip it kind of thing. And you just have to be a lot more simpler with them. So Exactly. I, yeah. Yeah. I think there, there's so many situations like that. But on a practitioner side, whether it's on the strength and conditioning, whether it's on the medical, really on the mental, which is getting to be mm. a bigger thing. And thank God. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I think we're starting to get to figure out. We have all this data. We haven't contextualized it. We haven't figured out how to individualize it. We haven't figured out how to package it up because it's different. You know, as a strength and conditioning guy, I want to know different things than a sports medicine guy. The strength and conditioning guy probably shouldn't see a lot of the medical things. Um, and, and the trainer probably doesn't want to know what what's going on in the weight room half the time. They don't need to know all that data. They just need to know he had a heavy day. So maybe maybe we lighten up on yeah, some of the rehab. Yep. So exactly. I, I think that contextualization of the information, that individualization, uh, you know, there's so many different sources just for, you know, Whoop, Aura, Apple, the BioIntelliSense. I could probably rattle off 10 things that essentially do the same thing mm -hmm. with different levels of accuracy, different presentation, um, how they do it. Yeah. Oh, how do we if get you're that? trying how to we compare get apples to oranges, there's like a certain Literally. level of like standard information <laughs> there, you know? So Yeah, there's a confidence interval that you have to get to with those, but even then, how do you put that with injury history? How do you put that with recovery? Recovery is the one area that I think is almost completely blank slate. We know a lot about nutrition and hydration. We don't know a whole lot about sleep and, and other recovery techniques. Um, we've got, you know, passive recovery, which is just sleeping and eating, basically yeah. resting, yeah, right. um, taking a nap, and then on the other hand, you've got these active recovery techniques, you know, Theragons and Normatex and, and Cryo and you, saunas. How, how is, is there such a thing as a recovery unit the same way there is a fatigue unit? And do they actually balance? I think at some point we're going to have to actually balance them and say, you know, if you, if yeah. you do one, you must have one. Um, well, that, that's so, interesting you bring that up is the, the fatigue unit, right? And you know, the part of like the whole, when modus, the modus sleeve was coming out, like you were trying to see when you saw the, the drastic spikes mm -hmm. and differences yep. with guys' arms. So, you know, how they, they do go hand in hand, but 
the biggest thing is like you said, like you have a decade of your sleep data. So you'll know like when that is a little bit off compared to your so-called like uh, not homeostasis is like a allostasis, mm. right? Like within a range that you're usually yep. going to be at. But if you go out of that range, then that's where the red flags start. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I've learned is I can't sleep more than nine hours. If I do, it ruins me. Hmm. It, it, it's, wor- it's worse for me to sleep less than it is to sleep more. I don't know why that is. My body just doesn't respond to it. Um, yeah. You know, there, there are times when you get one of those lazy Sundays and you yeah. end up sleeping till noon. I feel horrible. I, I don't know why that is. And it's largely just me. Uh, sure. I can, I can survive on six hours sleep. Um, especially lately, I've done a lot of work on a form of yoga called yoga Nidra, which is kind of sleep yoga. You're not actually it's sleeping. Cool. It's just a very deep rest. Um, and it, that, that's the one kind of unknown, unused technique, even though it's thousands of years old that I'm really excited about. And, uh, I did a presentation with the world pitching Congress uh about that and, and recovery uh you know, napping is, is where i want to be that's kind of in, in a lot of ways but i think napping and yoga nidra are the two areas that need to be explored even more so mm-hmm. you know if i was starting my career now i wouldn't be the injury expert i'd be like the nap king or something <laughs> i love it that's awesome well i mean even in uh you know, zooming out a little bit, you go into nature, you see, you know, lions or, you know, other mm. people who are cheetahs, right? Like they're, they're napping to reserve energy and all of a sudden they're like, boom, off to yeah. the rest. Right. So there's definitely some, some truth in that that we got to definitely keep digging into for sure. Um, yeah. It's interesting. You know, one, one of the things I, I actually heard an opposing coach, uh, I, w- I worked with a college team for a couple of years basically trying to figure out how coaches and players absorb data. Mm-hmm. Um, but her opposing coach, uh, a player was stretching while there was a mound visit. And the coach said, a cheetah doesn't warm up before he runs. And I was like, really? And, and so I actually called a zoologist. And I was like, so I heard this phrase, which seems absolutely stupid. Because a cheetah, I know, is very fast and they're very mm-hmm. quick. Not the most endurance-focused uh, animal. Oh, yeah. Sure. There. They're fast birds, very straight. They can't really yeah. catch very well. Right, yeah. And, and their body's built for that. And I was like, but do they stretch? He's like, no, they don't stretch. But if you see one, and, and actually pointed me to an episode, like a BBC documentary about a cheetah. And, and when they're, like, hunting, first they have to, like, pad up on these things and get close enough that fast, you know, 30, 40 mile an hour burst is you catch the yeah. gazelle. Yeah. They're creating so, the pretension there. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what he said. But there was a point where it was just waiting for that moment and you could see it was almost shaking with tension. So was he stretching? No. Was he warming himself up? Was he a, a, a moving creature? Was he pre-tensioning those muscles? Absolutely. And these were natural instincts. I think we all have them, especially within the fight or flight. But uh, it kind of struck me that some dumb, meaningless phrase like sent me down a zoology cheetah rabbit hole. Yeah, uh, <laughs> which is, but, I mean, that's a really cool perspective for you to have, though, because if you're you're looking at that and you're like, okay, uh, let's find an expert and see if this is actually true or not. Yeah, and... and then can we apply it? Yeah. You know, yeah. do you need to stretch before again? Yes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm safe to say yes, I think. But is there something that we can learn about pretensioning? Uh, there, there was, I forget what coach it was, had players at first base jumping uh, as the pitch was going and then could steal off that jump because he felt they were quicker when they landed to accelerate. Uh I think, yeah, I think there's some merit to that. Maybe not every single guy, uh, but for some guys who, you know, need to have that, you know, quote unquote, co-contraction or just like something to get that pretension, like you talked about with the cheetah, I, I think it would probably definitely help facilitate or at least. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's interesting enough that I think we should analyze the entire movement. Uh, sure. For me, 
obviously this was a short sprint. Mm. Uh, you know, if you're stealing a base, it's a short sprint. You have to make a decision and then go and then, you know, theoretically slide or avoid or you know, they throw it into the outfield. Are we in the best position? Why do we do the things we do? Mm. You know, why do we get the lead where we do? You know, if, if you didn't, if you could have a better starting position, would it be like, for instance, we know that sprinters sprint off the blocks. Mm -hmm. So if you could be faster, would you give up the lead by pushing off first base? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the Probably not, no, though, because it's actually shortening the distance versus going yeah, up to 90 versus 80. Exactly. Yeah. You know, shortening by eight feet or, or nine feet or 10 feet in some cases uh, completely is more advantageous than any push you're going to get. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it's an interesting thought. Can you get in a better position, a more athletic sprint focused position if you're going to steal? Uh, why do we do the things we do? I mean, it would eat, it would be great if you could, you know, point directly to the base, but then you can't get back to the base. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there's so many environmental factors that you have to deal with that you have to find that hopefully perfect compromise piece. That's it. Well, yeah. And that, that's just like the, the constraints of the game, so to speak, I guess, that give an emergence of a particular movement. Yeah. Yeah. It, it comes back to, you know, one of the things that's been covered over the last couple of days here in the midst of this baseball lockout is that they want to ban the shift. But my question is, why do guys stand there? Why are these guys where they are? Especially with the technology we have now that we can say this guy is here and he ran 77 feet at 15 meters per second and caught the ball with a 75% chance of this catch. We can see that, you know, 80% of catches could be made in this circle. And if those circles don't overlap, you're in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. And it should be different for every hitter. If this hitter hits a 90-mile-an-hour fastball here, you should have more people there. It's the old we will a keeler thing, hit them where they ain't. Well, now we know where they ain't. And, yeah. and if, if we can do that better, um, you know, if we ban the shift, we're going to get a motion defense where the shortstop's going to be running across. They're going to reposition the outfielders. There's going to be a different way of doing this. It's going to find a loophole in the rules. So it's pointless. Um, <clears throat> but we'll, we'll see where it goes. It, 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 I, I think it's an inartful solution to a problem that doesn't really exist. Uh, yeah. I don't really care if Joey Gallo gets a couple more ground balls to the right. <laughs> gets a few extra singles, I guess, to bump. Yeah, really ball. exciting. You fixed baseball. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're, you're spot on, though, because there's, there's always going to be some type of loophole. And even with this past season where they were cracking down on the sick, sticky stuff, like, you know, guys are still going to figure out a way to get around that. Like, like, oh, they check our glove, they check our belt, and they check our hat. Where else can I put it? Mm -hmm. To to make it, you know, or yeah. have some other substance to where you know they won't even know that this is a thing. A really easy yeah, one. Your full fog sunscreen and rosin, like they provide it for us. That's easy, you know. Yeah, there was one. Um, gosh, this is actually in science of baseball. Somebody had figured out that with sticky stuff, there was a. I want to say it was called basting. It was something to do with uh, knitting. Where okay. the stuff you sprayed on there to keep something together, um, it's very very sticky, but it washes off really quickly and cleanly. So hmm. all you basically had to do was wipe your pants or wipe your hand on your pants, and it was gone if they were checking you. So yeah, there's always going to be some solution. Uh, I know pitchers that have. Uh, this is 30 years ago that we had super glue solutions that we'd mix up. Uh, don't go to an engineering school and get it near baseball because we'll have somebody that's like, oh, wait, I have an idea. Uh, yeah. If we can dilute this super glue just enough, and man, I, I wish Rapsodo had existed then. I could spun the heck out of something. I bet. I bet. You just have the whole white leather piece right there on the Yeah, occasionally, occasionally you just tear your skin right <laughs> off. But, uh, you know, you got to <laughs> suffer for science. 
That's it. That's it. Well, yeah, definitely looking forward to to reading the the science of baseball. And then is that already released? No, that it comes out March 15th. March 15th. Uh, so depending okay. on when you're watching this, it might be out. Uh, you can pre-order that wherever you buy books. Uh, and, and I'm excited about that. And then you can also pre-order science of football. That won't be out until September. Uh, but uh, Perfect excited timing, about- though, like right before the season and Right, well, baseball, and then right before the season of uh, football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the publishers are smart like that. They, they, they just are. need an actual baseball season. That that too. I mean, hey, if if anything, just go to college baseball or minor league baseball. I think is still exactly baseball go, is so. baseball. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm very curious to see whether or not more people go to those games. College baseball is exciting. It's probably better. Oh, it's than great. It's ever been yeah. minor league baseball. You know, uh, it, it's going to be interesting because especially at the AAA level. Here in Indianapolis, we have Pittsburgh's uh, AAA team. Okay. And so they might have some really exciting prospects like O'Neill Cruz, who's a 6'7 shortstop. Um, yeah, he's fun to watch. Um, but those guys who are on the 40-man won't be able to play. And so there's going to be about five or six, I think the most I saw was nine, uh, guys that are basically off the AAA roster. So what do you do? Yeah, because I don't think they're gonna. Yeah, yeah, I don't think they're gonna bring up double A guys. They're gonna have to find bodies. So yeah, they're well, they are finding bodies, right? So like you know, me being a little bit more boots on the ground, right? Like they're getting a lot of other free agent signings, but then I guess once the lockout's up, like what do they do with those extra bodies? Do they just release them and then send them to the indie ball? and you know, that's that's exactly what I think it'll be is at least in theory, you know, Atlantic League doesn't start until, uh, I want to say late April. Uh, The Pioneer League's not until like May, just because they play at Montana. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I do think that's basically what we're going to see. They're going to find five or six guys. Does one of those guys stick? Does one of those guys get hot? Maybe. Do we we bring back uh, Mike Hessman? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Does one of those coaches think, you know what? I can probably play for another month. And make that thousand dollar check. They're probably making more as a coach, uh, but it'll be interesting to see where they fill in. Uh, you know, maybe I'll yeah, go work. Never know. Yeah. Well, it'll definitely. ball is not going to work at this level. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see it all unfold for sure. Awesome. Well, well, that's uh, that's all I got for you, man. I appreciate your time and taking some time out of your day out out there at the combine to to do this podcast. But where can the listeners find you? And, um, you know, go ahead and plug your, your Instagram and Twitter handles and all that. Yeah. Well, if you want my Instagram, it's injury expert, but all I do is food on there. Okay, uh, so cool. if you want to see the brisket I just cooked, then love you can that. Do that. Yeah. Huge uh, <laughs> so most of my stuff is on Twitter where I am at injury expert. Uh, you can find me at under the knife. And again, science of baseball coming out March 15th, uh, is available for pre-order at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you buy books, uh, check your independent bookseller. Um, and then science of football will be coming out, uh, in September. I think it'll be September 15th. Don't have the exact date available for pre-order. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, appreciate it. Will. and for you listeners out there, stay in the zone.